grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father through our Lord Jesus. Amen. The Day of the Holy Innocents. This is, I'm sure, not the most well-known holiday in the Christian church calendar. But on this New Year's Day, we're going to consider this story so that we understand the events that surrounded Jesus' birth. Jesus was not brought into this world in peace or in prosperity, but in poverty and danger. Our lives, uh, this year and every year, often mirror his. And this will be true until he returns to take us home to his Father's side, where there will no longer be violence and strife or these other effects of sin, instead rest and security forever. Our church holidays are somewhat out of order here, and it's worth explaining that so that we have the history clear this morning. So on December 25th, we celebrate Christmas, and on January 6th, we celebrate Epiphany, and we'll actually celebrate that the following Sunday. The Day of the Innocents, which the church calendar places between those two, Christmas and Epiphany, should actually come after Epiphany, because Epiphany marks the visit of the wise men, right? We three kings of Orient are the song, right? That's the wise men coming to worship Jesus. And they visited the family in Bethlehem sometime after Jesus' birth, but first they stopped in Jerusalem, in the capital. They knew that Jesus was the king God had promised to send, so first, to look for him, they went to the royal palace in Jerusalem. But while the man who actually sat in that palace, a man named Herod, liked to call himself a king, he was not truly a king. He was not from David's royal family. The Roman Empire had made Herod governor of their province, Judea. There in Jerusalem, the wise men found out that the prophet Micah had predicted that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod sent them to find the baby, then to return and to tell him so that he could also worship the child. But this was a lie. Herod, who never felt secure on his throne, intended to murder Jesus, this baby king. And so God, after the wise men visited that night, came to them in a dream, and to Joseph, and he warned them about Herod's plan. So the wise men left for their own country by another way. Joseph fled with Jesus and Mary to Egypt, and then Herod, realizing that his plan had been foiled, ordered all the children two years and below in Bethlehem to be put to death. Herod was no idiot. He had 30 years' experience of murder to his name already, while on the throne, he had massacred many, many Jews who refused to have him as king because he was a Roman puppet, not truly from David's family. The high priests and the elders had opposed him stubbornly, and Herod had no problem exacting his retribution until all the eminent people among the Jews had been put to death. He executed the priests. He executed the nobles. He executed the rulers in Jerusalem. Then he took control of the office of high priest. He removed the high priestly garments from the temple, and he sold the privilege to wear them to those of his own choosing, at one point one of his own brothers. Herod was a self-righteous hypocrite, like so many autocrats and dictators throughout history, and even in our own day. For 30 years he oppressed his people, even his own family. He had two of his own sons put to death with their mother. And when the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, right, the one who decreed that census, when Caesar Augustus heard about it, the historians tell us that Caesar joked, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. The pig would probably live longer. And now, after decades of plots and murders and wicked planning, this butcher heard from the wise men that a new, true king of the Jews was born. And naturally, Herod became even more senseless and irrational, but he kept his murderous intentions cloaked from the wise men, pretending that this news also brought him joy. He told them to be sure to let him know where the child was, so that he could go and serve him also. Worship indeed. With a sword 
thrust through the heart. But that plan failed when those wise men never returned. His first plan had been targeted, just the one child. His backup plan was to cast his net wide. I have put so many people to death already, Herod thought. What are a few more? And so he ordered all of Bethlehem's children, two years old and under, to be murdered in a sudden attack without warning, which he ordered secretly in the night before. And so two commands were issued that night. Herod gave the command for the children to be killed. The angel, on the other hand, appeared to Joseph in a dream and commanded him to flee to Egypt without delay. The angel says to him, not go or travel, but get up. Get up out of here right now. If you're here in the morning, Jesus will be dead. So Joseph did not waste any time. He didn't wait until morning. He got up that very night and fled with Mary and Jesus. Just consider for a moment what a cruel tyrant Herod was. God gives worldly authorities their power so they can restrain violence, so they can protect the people under their power. Herod made a mockery of God's intent for government. He was happy to kill and kill and kill. So they think they can hide the newborn king from me, he thought. Then I'll take measures that I'll hide from them. Right now they're rocking their children to sleep, giving them dinner, but I swear it will be for the last time. Those mothers felt secure in Bethlehem, all sleeping with their little children, totally unaware of any danger. In the morning, the king's executioners arrived, took the children, and slaughtered them without mercy. It must have been a horrible sight. They had bigger families back then. There would have been very few homes in all of Bethlehem without children of that age. There would have been sobbing and shrieking about this bloodthirsty tyrant in every house as Matthew draws from the prophet Jeremiah. This is the kind of weeping we still hear when another angry young man walks into a school with a gun or another Russian missile barrage hits Ukrainian homes. This is how the life of our Lord Jesus begins with the devil appearing soon on the scene to cause suffering and grief. But Satan must have realized soon what he actually gained by it, right? He gets nothing from this. For these children are taken out of this world where these kinds of murders and atrocities are ever present into our own time still, and they're taken to heaven. Herod, this butcher, tore these little children from their mother's bosoms and in his madness sent them to heaven, making martyrs of them. And what does God promise about martyrs, about those who die in his name? Their blood is precious in his sight. And Mary and Joseph, contrary to the designs of Herod, contrary to the designs of Satan, escaped with their boy but not without their own crosses to bear. It's unclear when exactly this took place, right? There's debate over when exactly the wise men visited Jesus and then when they would have left and at what point Herod would have realized that they weren't telling him and so at what point he would have sent the soldiers and at what point then Joseph would have had the dream. We're unclear. But some have suggested as early as six weeks after Christmas. Right? Mary could very well have still been recovering from the birth without the benefit of modern postnatal care. Not only that, but when they fled, they would need to spend some three to six years in Egypt, depending on the timeline we have here, right? With only what they had been able to frantically pack that night. Their home was in Nazareth, not Bethlehem, and they had not yet returned home. So Joseph's carpentry tools, which could have earned him a good income there in Egypt, were left to gather dust in his workshop in Nazareth up there in Galilee, where their home was, where they had hoped to return soon. Instead, the Holy Family lived as refugees in a foreign land, fleeing violence and wickedness. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he choose to enter our world under such awful conditions and allow so many adversities to come into not only his life, right, but the life of those close to him? Why didn't he just use his divine power to protect his family? Why didn't he use the protection of angels who could have disposed of Herod? 
simply for this reason, so that we can find in the Bible that our Lord and Savior is a real, ordinary man who in all things was determined to be like us except for sin. As Paul says in Philippians 2, rather, Christ made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant by being made in human likeness. This is how Jesus wanted it for himself. The true God come down to earth did not intend to live as a God among men. No, he did not want something more extraordinary than the life that others lived. He was determined to be an ordinary human being. So he lived and behaved as the ordinary human being which he was. He allowed himself to wear diapers, to be nursed by his mother, to pull himself up on furniture, to eat, to drink. He stood in the same relationship with all other things as all other children, again with that sole exception that he never committed a single sin. He intended to keep his majesty and deity under wraps until he accomplished the redemption of mankind. He did not come to destroy the world nor to defend himself with the sword. No, until it was time for him to die, he preserved his life as we do. He fled from danger with his parents. When his enemies plotted against him during his ministry, he withdrew privately with his disciples, not wanting to test God. This was recorded for us as both a lesson and an example. As a lesson, we are here assured of what we believe about Jesus. The one who died for your salvation is truly a man, a human being, who experienced life on earth as anyone else. He made no difference between himself and you, but he suffered and faced difficulty as you do, only without sin. In our times of difficulty and trial, we do sin often, and we try to excuse it. Today, we recognize that there is no excuse for our sin, but there is a Savior for us. And this text also gives us an example. If we face danger or difficulty or temptation and can flee for refuge, we should. Too many people today allow themselves to face unnecessary danger and difficulty and test God. Maybe they see no issue with tiptoeing up to temptation. They want to imagine that they are special, that God will specially protect them, that they have the personal willpower and strength to face conditions with other, which others can't. Many who think this way don't go to church to make use of God's means of grace. They want something out of the ordinary. But you, dear Christian, know better than to desire special treatment and worldly renown. You know how God has ordered things. He has given you worldly rulers who rule at his pleasure for your good. He has given pastors, preachers, the word, baptism, communion, all other things to you which belong to spiritual life. If you order your life in accord with these things, you will not go wrong. But if you insist that God and others treat you in some special way, you act contrary to God's will and command. See how our Lord Jesus submitted to normal life. He was willing to be like the other children he knew, so much so that had his parents not protected him from Herod, he would have died. It is in his footsteps that we ought to likewise walk, in the manner Paul describes again in Philippians 2, do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine like among them like stars in the sky. Friends, may we thus give testimony each day of our lives to our Lord, who comes soon to judge the living and the dead. Amen.